All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we are talking with Dr. Jeff Riddle on the confessional or canonical text. Uh, this topic, to me, I think, has got a huge impact um, on so many different areas, especially when it comes to uh, the Word of God and translations uh, that, in my opinion, has a great impact on doctrine and different different topics as far as that goes. But um, it'll be a fun conversation tonight. So we are going to get into, hopefully, we'll see where the time goes, um, to kind of interact with some of the objections from guys like James White, um, who would hold to the modern critical text position, or with James Snap, uh, would hold to the equitable eclecticism or reasoned eclecticism position. Um, and we'll see how far we get, um, what we're able to accomplish, but it'll be a good time. One disclaimer, I've got to tell you, usually I do these episodes uh, after my kids go to bed or I do them on a Sunday when uh, on a weekend when my kids are uh, napping. Um, so you may hear some background noise. That's just my twins that are running around upstairs and chasing each other and doing, doing kid stuff. So, all right. Anyways, let's get into it. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men, that He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected His provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question For whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, so let me switch cameras over here, and uh, while I'm doing that, I want to make sure that you know in the audience, if you would like to, feel free to... Um, share this video, uh, to like us, to subscribe. Uh, that way when we get into other videos, you'll get notifications on that uh, before they come out. But um, you can also send us a voicemail if you've got questions or you've got comments about anything that we talk about. You can do that at any podcasting platform uh, that you prefer. Just go to the description of whatever episode uh, or podcast that it is in particular that you're listening to. And there should be a link that you can click, which is labeled, leave a voicemail. Just click that. You can leave as a voicemail, and we can incorporate that into a future episode and uh, use that and, and try to answer your question. So anyways, without further ado, we have Jeff Riddle. I want to get right to kind of the meat of the conversation and, and jump into it. Uh, Jeff Riddle is on with us. I'm going to get to the camera here, but I've got to, I've got to let everyone know that you can't see Jeff. Because for whatever reason, we're, we're trying to figure this out. We can't get the camera to work, uh, but we're going to do the podcast anyway. You should be able to hear him. Um, so with that said, Jeff, hey, welcome to Talking Christianity. I'm really excited to have you on tonight. Hey, Josh. It's, thank you for the invitation to be on tonight. And I apologize for 
the camera not working properly. I'm assuming you're, you're, you've got the image of uh, Benjamin Keach. That's not, not actually the way I look, but that's <laughs> Benjamin Keach, <laughs> the Puritan Baptist who lived from 1640 to 1704. So anyways. You know what's funny about that is it actually went back to the camera with the slash through it. So I don't, I, we don't have. Oh, oh you got to be kidding me! You no. got to be kidding me! No, that's you don't, you don't see the icon anymore, huh? No, I don't know what's going on with it. It's so oh, weird. I just, word. I mean, and that's just the way the night's going. You know, uh, we had said it earlier. You know, maybe this just isn't supposed to happen. But <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we we decided to go with it anyway. So. Okay, so I'm going to give a brief introduction, and um, Dr. Riddle, please correct me if there's anything that I say that's not correct. You are the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia, and an adjunct professor at Piedmont, Virginia Community College. You are also a podcaster and do um, a lot of Word magazines and different topics. You're a blogger, which I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in, in the topic of textual criticism. Uh, you can go to his blog site, which is jeffriddle.net and uh, there's just a, a plethora of articles and information um, on this topic uh, that's just it's it's highly valuable it's highly valuable to me um, but I also on the blog site um, there's there's different links into there to different articles that you've written but also um, uh, different books that you've written or have been published uh, which leads me to my next point you're on academia.edu so if anyone is interested in uh, any of the articles that Dr. Riddle has written, you can access him on ed, uh, academia.edu and just search for Jeff Riddle and you'll be able to find his work on there as well. Uh, but all of that is in addition to your works which are published in the Puritan Journal. I don't, I, I don't maybe it's the Puritan Reform Journal, I don't know. Um, but I think that's all that I've got. So is there anything that I missed there? I think you covered me pretty well, Josh. Are you still? Are, are you getting that icon again? Yeah, it's still the the camera icon. So it's, I'm seeing the icon on my side. Let me so see. I don't here. know what's happening. Um, see, on Skype, that is so weird. I, I don't yeah. know what the deal is. I I cannot figure that out. But on Skype now, it's got the Keech icon, but in my video platform, and I've got I've got the Skype guest. Uh, camera on you, but it's just got got the camera on there. So I'm just going to put the camera on me, and we'll have the audio for you. So um, okay, we'll just have to do it Sorry that way. That. No worries, no yeah. worries. No, I think you covered the basis pretty well for me. So my, I'm, you know, my, I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church, Louisa, Virginia. So we're a Reformed Baptist uh, congregation. And um, I do teach adjunctly at Piedmont Virginia Community College, which is in Charlottesville, Virginia. Louise is near Charlottesville. Okay. Um, and I teach uh, a couple classes, usually per semester. I teach a survey of the New Testament, New Testament early Christianity, um, survey of the Old Testament, um, and life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, I actually sometimes teach a world religions class and I've designed three online classes for wow. Piedmont, for Piedmont, Virginia community college. Um, I'm teaching this semester an online version of survey of the new Testament that I designed. Um, so I do that. And, uh, as you said, I, uh, blog Jeff Riddle.net and I have a podcast word magazine and, um, 
which is a, just an occasional thing. And it's, it's very simple. I don't have a YouTube channel. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's good. Maybe it's God's providence because I don't normally like to do video things, but I do every once in a while. Um, so uh, and then uh, we have in Virginia uh, a fellowship that's called the Reformed Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, just a small fellowship of some like minded uh, confessional Reformed Baptist churches. And we were talking about earlier. Uh, off air, uh, we have an annual theology conference called the Keach Conference that I, uh, along with uh, several other pastors, help coordinate. And so we try to keep busy serving the Lord and enjoying all the things that the Lord allows us to do. That is, see, and and we were talking about it off air as well. Um, I was like, gosh, I don't know. You're you're super busy. Like you're always doing something. And uh, you just listed all of those other things that you're involved in with the community college and and, and uh, the programs that you've worked on designing. And it's it that's just another element to um, how busy you are. But in addition to that, you just finished the Keech Conference. And, and more recently, you literally just a couple days ago finished uh, the Text and Canon Conference. So uh, now you're doing a, a podcast to kind of talk about what you just talked about in the text and canon conference. So I've got to say, like, I really do appreciate you coming on to do that. Um, but if, if I could, just for the viewers who may not be familiar um, with some of some of the, the work that you've done or the videos that you've done or the podcasting that you've done, um, why don't you kind of just give us a, a, a background, a backdrop on what the text and canon conference was about and how it went? Well, the Text and Canon Conference was a conference that was held uh, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Um, it was hosted by Christ Reformed Church, which is in Lawrenceville, a, a suburb north of Atlanta. And uh, the host pastor was Robert Trulove. And Robert is very active online, Facebook and YouTube channel and different th- other things. But um, he and I both have had an interest in uh, the texts of Scripture and defending the traditional texts of Scripture. Actually, the first time we'd ever met was uh, this past weekend, face to face. We talked on- online. Have actually skyped really? with each other. We I, no I did a way. podcast. Did the video we, work? We, I did a, a podcast interview with him that was on Skype, and he re- recorded it. Um, anyways, uh, so awesome. uh, so he's just a friend, and this 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 conference. Um, was the first such conference that was devoted to the topic of the traditional text or the confessional text, as I have preferred to call it. It's also been called confessional bibliology, um, defending basically the traditional text, the Hebrew Masoretic text of the Old Testament, and the Texas Receptus of the New Testament. So we had the, the conference last Friday and Saturday. Um, I gave four lectures slash messages, uh, and Robert gave three uh, messages. And then we had uh, Jonathan Arnold, who is the editorial consultant for the Trinitarian Trent, uh, Bible Society, and he's also a pastor of Westminster uh, Reformed Baptist Church in London, England. He came over, and um, we actually also had it just as a guest. He wasn't a speaker. Bill Greendike, who is the coordinator for Trinitarian Bible Society in North America, and is actually one of the translators 
of TBS's new um, project to translate the, the, the Bible in Spanish using wow. the traditional original language text. So he was there. But we had brothers who came from all over the country. And um, I said in the opening, if you listen to some of the lectures, I think in the very first one, I said that when Robert and I first talked about doing this conference uh, over a year ago, you know, we weren't sure if, who would come, if anybody would come. We thought that might just be a handful of people who would come. And I think we were both very surprised because we had a good turnout. Uh, his little church was full. Um, and we had people, not only did what just was the fact that we had people come, but we had people come from all over the country. We had people come from Seattle, Washington, from Arizona. Uh, we had people come from Kentucky, Indiana, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, um, Florida. And then we had people come from Canada. Wow. And, uh, and I mentioned we had the brother come from the UK. Yeah. So it was very encouraging and that there were people literally from all over the country who came to this, this little conference. Yeah. Um, and we're no, Robert and I are not celebrities. We're not celebrity pastors. We're both pastors of small churches and, um, nobody knows us. We're not well known. We haven't written lots of books or, or done a lot. Um, but there just seemed to be a hunger and an interest in this topic. And I think we are seeing, uh, something that's organic, something that is um, providential, where it just seems to be that there's a renewed interest right now in this topic of text, and in particular in the defense of the tr of the traditional text of Scripture, vis-a-vis -vis the modern critical text. Yeah. See, and I would have to agree with you on that because um, I, I think that uh, I would have to say that God is behind it. I mean, even even though I'm not Reformed, I'm not Calvinist, but I'm highly interested in what you guys are doing because you just don't see anybody. I don't. I, I mean, there's people out there. There, there's, there's definitely more people out there who hold this position. But um, I really appreciate what you and Robert are doing, especially in this conference. And maybe next year, you can have somebody represented from Missouri uh, that could come to that conference because I would, I would love to. I'd love to uh, come out maybe there. It could, maybe so. it could be you. Hey, that would, I, it might be me. So we'll see. Right. But it's good to see you guys doing that. And I really appreciate yes, the work. I, as far as I know, there wasn't anybody from Michigan, but there could have been. And yeah. I, I, one state that I left out was Michigan. There were a couple okay. of people from Michigan who were there, uh, including wow. Bill Greendike, who's from uh, Grand Rapids. But there were a couple other people there that were also from Michigan. So were there um, any other... Uh, you had mentioned, I think I heard you right. Um, were there any other speakers other than yourself and Robert Truelove? Yeah, uh, Jonathan Arnold did a presentation on the work of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Okay. Um, and I, I didn't. I just found this out yesterday. Um, Robert told me that unfortunately the recording no. mal malfunctioned for oh, his man. for for um, Jonathan's message which was great his message yeah. was great it was a shorter it was just a half hour or so yeah. and um yeah. he had it i know he had it in a written format 
And I think Robert may try to get him to um, maybe redo it. Yeah. I don't know. But um, he basically just talked a little bit about the work of the Trinitarian Bible Society, which is a, um, a, a Bible society in the UK that has chapters in different places all over the world that's committed to the promotion of translations based on the traditional text. And then among English-speaking people, they exclusively promote the use of the King James Version. I see. Um, but, but they're not KJV only because they promote translations of the Bible, again, based on the traditional text. And one of the, one of the exciting things he mentioned, uh, Jonathan mentioned, he actually brought with him uh, a rough printer's copy of a new um, translation of the Bible in Farsi, which is the language of people who are from Iran, wow. that um, a brother who is a, a Reformed Baptist uh, in the UK, who's of Iranian descent, uh, Puyan Mershari, has completed, he and I think some other people, have just completed the New Testament in Farsi based on the traditional text and their They've done an initial run, I think, of um, uh, several thousand uh, copies of this, and they're now going to be in the process of distributing them. So it was really exciting to hear that. And um, so anyways, yeah, so so Jonathan was the only speaker other than um, Robert and myself. I see. Um, But I was thinking about the um, the whole thing about, you know, is it, you know, I, I said, I think later you, you, we were talking about it in the, the last message that I gave on Saturday uh, for the conference. I made reference to um, a comparison to back in the 60s and 70s when there was a renewal of interest in Calvinism and the Puritans and Reformed theology um, that started in various pockets all over the world, but, you know, particularly uh, in England, uh, in Westminster Chapel, where D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor, and they started the Banner of Truth Trust, and they started reprinting Puritan works, um, that, you know, there, at that time, there seemed to be a providential movement of God yeah. all of, that happened all over the world. It wasn't coordinated by anyone where there was a renewed interest in Reformed theology. And I, I'm not going to pretend um, to be able to authoritatively to know the workings of God. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist, so I believe in the sovereignty of God. God can do as he pleases um, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can say to him, what have you done? Um, and he's always working, too. I mean, he's, he's constantly, the Lord is constantly at work. But... Um, and so I'm not going to presume to be able to um, authoritatively or infallibly interpret the movements of God, but it does seem that there does seem to be renewed interest, and it's happening just again, inter- you know, just popping up in different places, different people. Um, uh, John, one of the things Jonathan shared was that you know they had recently the Trinitarian Bible Society had recently been contacted by a group of people in Inner Mongolia. Wow who were interested in um, having a translation of the Bible based on the traditional text. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, they, had, they had apparently had contact with 
with missionaries or people from the United Bible Societies who wanted to give them translations based on the modern critical text, but they wanted the old text. Really? They really? Wanted, yeah. So again, this is something that's not just among English-speaking people either. This is something, um, and sometimes we have, it was, it was pointed out in the conference several times that sometimes we have this idea that, oh my goodness, this is a, this is a minor view this is a minority position. There are very few people who hold to this type of view, and it's really probably not accurate. Um, there, there, are, there are thousands of, if not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of people who revere the traditional text of Scripture and use and prefer to use translations based upon it. Um, sometimes in, in in modern American evangelical circles, we may feel like, oh my gosh, everybody's using the ESV, the NIV. No one uses the old texts anymore. No one uses the old translations anymore. But, um, you that's know, not, we're that, not entirely true, is it? Yes. And well, I mean, there's a healthy, there's a healthy population of people in, you know, fundamental independent churches who still use the KJV. And, you know, and, 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 and that's a phenomenon, again, not just in the English-speaking world, but uh, I think in, in, in the world at large. I mean, every, every, one of those, every, every one of those places where the Bible is translated following the Protestant Reformation into the vernacular languages of Europe, whether it was into Dutch or Hungarian or French or Spanish, uh, German, you know, Basically, those translations are, you know, there are translations that are essentially the equivalent of the King James Version right, right. in all of those places. I was a missionary in Hungary and uh, speak Hungarian. Really? And, really? Uh, yeah. And, you know, in Hungary, there's a there's a there's the equivalent. It's called the Karoi Gaspar translation and uh, and was done, you know, in the. Uh, now the the year is slipping my mind. I want to say, 1589. I think is the year that it was it was done. Don't quote me on that. You can Wikipedia it. Um, but it was done, yeah, 20 years before the King James Version, yeah. Um, yeah. the Karoli Gaspar translation, and similarly, Hungarians revere it. It was it was important for the formation of their language, um, and it's based on the traditional text. And it's a bit archaic, um, some of the phraseology, as in with you know King James Version with English. Um, there's some different, but people still read it and like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So, um, so again, this isn't just in English. We're, we're, I know we're going all over the field here. You can stop me anytime you want. But, um, <laughs> but you know, sometimes we're, we're accused of being KJV onlyists. Um, yeah, how many and, times have you heard that? <laughs> Yeah, but the point is, this isn't just an English language issue. This is a this is a text issue, yeah, and yeah. it has applications in in many cultures and in in many languages. But it's it's a text issue, and then secondly, it's a translation issue. Yeah. Um, so, anyways. Yeah. Well, and I think the the conversation has to be drawn back to what the real issue is, and and and. To me, and it seems like to you and to Robert and so many other people that this is this is where the meat of the conversation has to be: is what is the text that God has preserved throughout history, and uh, it's it's just so important. But um, let's keep rolling here. I think to me, 
it may be a bit redundant for you since since obviously you've come from the Text and Canon Conference, and I would encourage you guys, if you have not listened to that, you can listen to it uh, on Sermon Audio. It's available on Sermon Audio. Just type in Robert True Love, and you can go to his church his his church page and uh, go to the sermon series, and you'll see it right there. But um, it's an eight-part series. I think I've made it through the first four parts, and hopefully um, we'll see if I can get through the rest of it tomorrow uh, or throughout the week. But um, so far, it's <clears throat> it's just a, a wealth of, of information, and it's it's good stuff. So go and listen to that if you if you get a chance to. But <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, what 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 I was getting at was it's important to understand the importance of the textual differences. I got a frog in my throat. <clears throat> sorry. Uh, that make up our Bibles today. So when we're talking about the translations, we're talking about the King James version, um, or uh, other other versions like the Modern English version, the New King James, the NIV. All these different versions. It's which text did it actually come come from? But especially when it comes to the historical use of the text, the methodology of that textual formulation, and the overarching problem of a never-ending reconstruction of the text itself. To get back to the originals, I think that that's where the argument and the conversation has to go. Do we have a text that you'll never, that will never ever end when it comes to being reconstructed, no matter what the methodology you use, whether it's CBGM or whether it's whether it's the the modern critical method that they've they've been going through in the 20th century up until where they've recently changed um, where the end goal is. But um, I, I guess where I'm going with that is. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, and probably more than we're actually going to get to. In fact, no doubt there's a lot more um, to talk about than what we're going to get to. But um, we we see how uh, we'll see how far we get with this blanket summary um, with some of the topics that we get into. But for the sake of our listens listeners, what we're going to dive into now is really the heart of the conversation. Without a ton of groundwork to establish where we're at in the conversation, I think most of you guys, if you're interested in this conversation. You probably have a pretty good groundwork for what we're talking about, which is why you're listening, why you're watching. So um, what I would say is uh, let's start with kind of a basic question regarding the methodology of the textual critic today. Are they still attempting to reconstruct the text to get back to the original? Um, well, I mean, as you, you noted, there's a fundamental difference between the modern critical text approach and what we've called the confessional text approach or the traditional text. And um, whereas the modern critical text is based on the idea that we can use modern scientific methods to reconstruct the lost original text. And we do that by sifting through the manuscripts, by comparing them and uh, analyzing them. And we can, uh, the, the text has been corrupted. It's been lost in transmission. And it's the task of the modern text critic to try to put the, the, the pieces together. It's been compared to, uh, you know, a puzzle, a bunch of puzzle pieces and it's the task of the science, scientific text critic to put these pieces together. Um, that's one view. The view of the traditional text, however, is 
not a reconstruction model, but a providential preservation model. And it's based on the idea that God has faithfully preserved and kept his word. And it is not our task to attempt to reconstruct the original. The original exists in the, uh, in the copies or the apographa that have been received um, and that have been printed uh, starting with in the Reformation era in what we know as the Texas Receptus with regard to the New Testament, the Masoretic text with regard to the Old Testament. So our task is not to reconstruct, but to receive the providentially preserved text. So that's a fundamental, those two words would, would fundamentally distinguish these two, these two methods or approaches, if we could call it that. I see. Now, Jean Tavernier, I hope I'm saying that last name correctly, um, in, in an article on academia.edu, which is titled, How We Got Our Bible, on page 286-287, um, says this, The problem is addressed, which I'll restate the problem just mentioned, and we'll build our con- conclusions from there, but here's, here's, what, here's what's written. He says, For all practical purposes, although we do not have the original manuscripts, we can say that we have the content of the original manuscripts in our modern Hebrew and Greek Bibles. It is surely obvious, then, that in spite of having no original manuscripts, and of having many variants in our available manuscripts, the substance of our Bible is very reliable. As with no other book of antiquity, there is an abundance of manuscripts, translations, and quotations from which our textual critics are able to affirm the content of the originals. Although we have considered the two primary problems encountered in textual criticism, today there still remains, however, lurking in the shadows a third problem. A brief exposure to it here will pave the way for the study of translations in the upcoming chapter. And he goes on. It, this, this section is titled A Raging Controversy. So here's the raging controversy, which is what we're attempting to address tonight. He says, A short time ago, a devout evangelical pastor stepped into his pulpit to announce uh, to his Sunday morning congregation that the only Bible to be used in the teaching of this church was the King James Version. His proclamation sent a shockwave through the crowd, and last year, a friend of mine candidating for a ministry in a Midwest evangelical church was rejected because he used a modern version of the scriptures in his preaching. While speaking at a Bible conference a year or two ago, a humble and faithful servant of the Lord poured out his broken heart to me. He had just been called a heretic. The charge? He was using a modern translation. His accuser was a loyal supporter of the King James Version who had launched a crusade in their church that threatened his very unity. Uh, So what's all the fuss about anyway? Simply stated, the debate is between the oldest Greek text and the majority Greek text. The majority text is the Greek text found in the host of later manuscripts that formed the basis of Erasmus' Greek New Testament and ultimately the King James Version. Since the publication of the Authorized Version in 1611, some much older manuscripts have been discovered, notably Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, both of the 4th century. In addition, papyri of the New Testament have been discovered that are dated in the 3rd century. So he sums it up this way, The differences between the received text which formed the basis of the Authorized Version and the older manuscripts has erupted into a controversy, in some circles a very heated controversy. The question is this, which text is the better text? The more reliable and the authentic text, 
the majority text or the older text. So the overwhelming opinion of scholarship today is in favor of the older text. The oldest manuscripts are today commonly classified as the best manuscripts. The discovery of many older manuscripts and the above conclusion of textual criticism has led to many revisions of the English Bible. And we'll sum it up this way, and then I want to ask you this question. Some of the changes in the text and explanatory notes in the margin of these revisions become intelligible only upon understanding the controversy in textual criticism. So, Dr. Riddle, I would ask you this, and uh, we, you've, 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 you've touched on it, but is the text and canon actually settled? Has it been received? And, and to follow up on that, how do we measure the weight of the TR's manuscripts against the age and the weight of the manuscripts considered for the modern critical position? Well, I mean, it's a huge, I mean, <laughs> you just ask a huge question. So, I mean, I, I, there's, yeah. it's, that's going to be impossible for me to answer in a, in a quick space span of time. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know who this person you just read this, these comments from. Is this a book? Is this an article? Yeah, it's who a book. It again? It's a book. Gene Tavernier, I guess is how you would pronounce the last name. Um, What's the book? It is How We Got Our Bible. And this quotation is from page 286 and 287. When was the book published? Who published it? Um, I don't have that uh, in my notes here, but I could get that uh, to you. So, I mean, I, I, I've never heard that guy's name. I don't know the book. I mean, actually, okay. what, it, what it said is kind of very typical of what you would hear from many evangelicals. Yeah. Um, so th there's there, there are lots of places I would have to go to deconstruct what he said. Um, you know, so it's very it's a lot. Of, you know, he said a lot of very typical things. Yeah. You know, one of them is, you know, they're. I, I'd be curious to know what year that was written or in what circles, because he's talking about people who hold to the modern critical text, good, loyal, Bible believing, humble people who the mean old K King James version toting people are oppressing them, which is, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not sure that really happens today. Honestly, where where did this happen exactly? I, there's um, it's just a quote. I mean, it's it's just a story <laughs> that's being told. I mean, there's no specific. It's anecdotal, so. first yeah. of all. Yeah, it's very anecdotal. So, um, you know, uh, Robert Trulove in the conference just talked about um, the opposite that can happen, and that is the person who comes in with their King James version, and they're shamed because they had they. What are you using that old outdated? translation so these anecdotal stories you know that's not really that, that that's not really the issue i mean right. that's a, a the anecdotal stories about someone was mean to someone you know that's neither here nor there yeah. um but anyways but a lot of the other things you know um there was a bandwagon argument there that was in there too most scholars today believe that the older manuscripts are better right which scholars um, and you, and I, I would just I would just send the reader the listener here to the lectures I gave in the conference, yeah. um, where I went through how many how many early manuscripts of the New Testament do we actually have? Um, so you know if you listen to some of the early lectures, um, how many early manuscripts do we? How many manuscripts of any kind? Do we have from the second century? Would you say it's is it is it less than ten, less than a hundred, less than a thousand? It's less than ten. Yeah. It's three, in fact. And I'm using statistics that are, were given by Dirk Yonkin 
uh, from uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge in a 2019 book. Um, we don't have a lot of manuscripts. We don't have any from the first century. Um, we, according to Yonkin's measure, we have three from the second century, about 50 from the third, about 48 from the fourth. We don't have a lot. We don't have a lot. And if you listen to the lectures, I explain why, because of persecution that happened, primarily the Diocletian persecution of 303 to 313 yeah. and other things that happened um, uh, in Western history that mean that we don't and, and Eastern history that mean we don't have very many manuscripts. Yeah. One of the one of the points I made in the conference, and I encourage you to go and listen to the lectures, is I said we simply don't have enough material. We don't have enough physical material in order to reconstruct the text. Um, and so there are a lot of evangelical, apologetic um, uh, accounts that have circulated over the years. And uh, one of them is that we have lots and lots of evidence to, to be able to reconstruct. Uh, and that's so one one counter is we just don't have that much. And that's why we have to rely not on uh, reconstructing early manuscripts, but we have to we have to rely on what has been providentially preserved and what has been most often used and affirmed uh, throughout uh, the history. And, and in, in particular, um, I happen to be confessional reformed. We would look at the Reformation era as a very key time period. If you're if you're a non-Catholic Protestant of any sort, yeah, you would yeah. see that you would see that the um, you don't have to be confessionally reformed. You would see that you know the Reformation era was very very important, and it was a seminal time, and that was the time when. Um, the, for the first time, the Bible was put into a printed form. They didn't rely on hand-copied manuscripts. And in the providence of God, what text was printed? Yeah. Well, it, it was the it was the traditional text. And then, what text was the basis for all the vernacular translations of the Reformation era that I made reference to earlier? Well, it was the traditional text. Now we can say, well, that was just an accident of history. And, um, you know, now starting in the 19th, in the 19th century, we can begin to reconstruct the text based on supposedly earlier finds. Um, I, I don't buy that scenario. Um, I, I would, I would, I would say we, we, we still don't have a wealth of, of manuscript evidence. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, only date to the fourth century. That's still 350 years minimum after the time of the apostles. Yeah, we don't have any. We don't. We don't have very much evidence uh, of the New Testament from the first 300, 400 years of Christianity. We just don't have it. Yeah. yeah. And so, if you don't have the evidence, you can't reconstruct it. And so that's one. That's one of the arguments I made. Uh, in the conference, and again, I, I'd send you to listen to particularly the first two lectures yeah. that I yep. gave uh, in the conference. Well, and there's a lot of statistics in there as far as uh, the number of manuscripts that we have, as well as the the, the different text families and, and kind of um, where that conversation is going, whether we even consider um, manuscripts to be within a text family, um, or if we consider them as their own individual witness. 
and um, I, there's just so much information in there. I'd encourage you go listen to that. It's yeah. it's invaluable. So um, yeah, well, you know, I, I made the point that you know, and for anybody who's kind of been talking about text criticism, you know, for the last few decades or something like that. Um, or if you, if you're somebody who's older or maybe a pastor or someone, you went to seminary and you, you took, you know, in your new Testament course, or maybe even took a special class on text criticism, or maybe you're interested in these issues, either defending the traditional text or the King James version or opposing it, or, you know, talking about the modern critical text, you know, you, you've, you've heard all this language that's been popular since the, the time of Westcott and Hort yeah. back in the 19th century. And actually, even before them, it goes all, all the way back to a pietist German Lutheran named Bengal, um, who was one of the first people to come up with this idea of text families. And then it was sort of, you know, codified by Westcott and Hort. You know, there's the there's the Alexandrian text family, and there's the Western text family, and there's the um, Caesarean, and there's the Byzantine, and they said the Byzantine is late, it's unreliable, um, whereas what they called the neutral text, which was uh, the Alexandrian manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, those are early, those are those are the the, the, the you know the ones that we that are the standard. Um, but the interesting, really interesting thing, and then we're going kind of all over the map, but in the last decade or so, the cutting edge text criticism is being done in the academy right now, uh, which has produced this new method that's called the coherence-based genealogical method that's being practiced and applied to the texts of the Bible, at particularly in Münster, Germany, at the Institute for New Testament Textual Research. That They have essentially said the whole idea of text types and text families is passe. They don't use that terminology in the way it was used in the 19th century or even through the early and up to the mid and late 20th centuries. Um, that terminology just isn't used anymore. If you start running around talking about, well, I believe in the, the, the modern text is better because it's represented by the Alexandrian text types. Um, that's not even the no nomenclature that's being used these days in the academy. Um, so there are a lot of changes. And that one of the, one of the general um, points to be made as well is if we, if, 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 if we are dependent upon a text that is created by the academy, it will, it will never be a fixed and a settled text. It will always be changing. They'll always be tinkering with it. There'll always be a new edition. There will never be a final edition of the scholarly text. And somehow along the way in Christianity, in Protestant Christianity, beginning in the 19th century, we began to hook our fortunes with regard to the text of scripture to the academy. And the church is no longer the steward of the scriptures. It's uh, a, a very small group of individuals who are involved in the enterprise of modern text criticism. Yeah. It's And it's predominantly a group of people right now at an institute in Munster, Germany, 
and they are the gatekeepers for the modern critical text. And um, they, the, the most recent edition is an SL on 28th edition. It came out in 2012 and a corresponding uh, edition that's created by the United Bible Societies. It's the same text, both, both the editions. And this is now the standard academic text, scholarly text, and uh, it, you know, and it, the 2012 edition is having an influence on modern translations that are based on the modern critical text. I gave one example in the lectures in Jude 5. Uh, the word Lord uh, has been changed to Jesus, and already the ESV and the Christian Standard Bible, what used to be called the Holman Christian Standard Bible, um, have you know made a change. And they've adopted the the new language uh, used by the modern critical text. But again, and th- this is a this is the issue of epistemology, right. the doctrine right. of knowledge. And if you if you if we've if we've you know if if we're dependent upon the scholarly text, it will always be changing. Um, and and uh, those of us in the confessional text camp see that as problematic because. Um, we, we don't believe that God's word is always changing. Yeah, yeah. And when we, when we accept the received text, it's a text that is fixed, that is stable, that's not constantly changing. And, um, and, and I think that is uh, a real benefit to holding to the confessional text or the traditional text. Well, Sorry. I agree with you. And there's so much to address in there. For, for those of you who may have uh, who, who just heard the difference there in Jude 5 where uh, Lord is substituted as Christ and uh, or as Jesus. Well, no, no, as Jesus. The, the traditional text says Lord and the modern critical text uh, now reads Jesus. Um, and I, I addressed this in, yeah. in my last lecture where I talked about, you know, what might be some of the theological ramifications uh, of that, I mean, I'm just turning my Bible real quickly, just so we're we're don't want to I don't want to create confusion about it. Uh, let's see if I can find. I've got a new Bible, and the pages are turning slowly. Let's see. Yeah, Jude five in the in the authorized version or the King James version, it says, "I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord." having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And we're in the traditional text. It's the word Lord, or in Greek, hakurios, the Lord. Uh, in the modern critical text, as of the Nesolon 28th edition, it doesn't read Lord, but it reads Jesus. And you might say, well, that's good. You know, it says, you know, it's referring to the Exodus, and it says Jesus was there leading the people out. Right. But um, if you think a little bit about it, it creates um, some hermeneutical issues here. It's problematic. Um, yeah, it's problematic. Because for one thing, the doctrine of the incarnation is that in the fullness of time, the word was made flesh. Um, the Lord Jesus was conceived in the womb of the virgin and was born in Bethlehem. Um, Jesus, the man, Jesus, did not exist in the time of the Exodus. So 
if we if if we say Jesus was there leading the people out next, we might say the second person, the Godhead, was there, the Son of God from all because the Son of God is God from all eternity, along with the Father and the Spirit. But anyway, so it creates a theological issue related to the incarnation if you use Jesus there rather than Lord. And I, I suggested it could also be have, create confusion because the name Jesus is also the typical Greek rendering, Jesus, of the of the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeah. So someone could say, well, it's referring to Joshua. So anyways, and I'm not saying anyone would say that in context. It doesn't does that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, lead you to that conclusion. But what I'm saying is that change. There, there are theological implications to even a small change like that. And I address a much larger issue uh, related to 2 Peter 3.10 yeah. in the lecture. But anyways. So go listen to that. And, and it may seem like something so small like that um, as an example. But I, to me, it just shows the consistency of the Bible. You, you will not find a theological inconsistency in words that are used like that. It... I, I just, I believe that in the providence of God's preservation through what, if you want to call it the traditional or the confessional or the canonical text or all of the above, um, that the Lord would be the better rendition as opposed to Jesus for all the, all of those reasons listed above. But in that same um, conversation to kind of piggyback of, off of what you had just said, um, where is it? it? Let's see. Yeah, so Juan Hernandez, he's also on Academia. Uh, .edu, and he, he's got a title that he wrote, Texts and Readers from a Text-Critical Perspective, and he says this on the reconstructed text. Almost unanimously, the text is written about by each of the contributors as if its reconstruction were a settled matter, as if it is, in fact, known what the text actually says in a given passage, and that the act of interpretation can therefore proceed without further reflection. The problem, of course, is that the text is no longer a settled matter. Even the very editors of the latest edition of the Greek New Testament concede that their text is a working text and that its readers ought to use the apparatus to make their own judgments about what the text should be. In other words, readers of today's Greek New Testament are being invited to construct their own texts, literally. The irony is that while all the contributors of this particular volume would certainly endorse such an approach on the basis of social location, they also appear to have assumed the New Testament's textual stability and their use of it. Unfortunately, this has resulted in some missed opportunities, opportunities that could actually further and strengthen our understanding of how texts are constructed and even sharpen our ideological criticisms of them. And I would, I would use that to kind of transition and springboard into what we're going to talk about next. But uh, do you see that that is where this conversation is going when it comes to the text of the scripture? Is it really literally being designed to be placed into any individual's hands to make their own text of the Bible? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, and that's the, the whole issue of, you know, postmodernism. And, um, you know, it's the spirit of this age that, um, you know, that there, there isn't uh, truth. There's, there's, there's what's true for you, and there's what's true for me, and there's not an objective standard of truth. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that seep into um, the approach, the modern approach to the Bible. 
And as you pointed out, you know, it's it's common now as of the uh, Nesolon 28th edition of 2012, um, they introduced this idea of putting within the Greek text a diamond, a, a diamond-shaped symbol at places in the text where they believe that it's impossible to come to a definite conclusion about what the t- original text actually read or what it, they use a concept now called the initial text, what the, what the, the, old, what the, the oldest text they can trace back should, would actually be. And so then what they do is they put a diamond, they put one reading in the text proper, and they might put several options in the, in the critical apparatus. And yeah, it's left to the it's left to the reader to decide. Now, again, it's a pretty elite group of people who can actually read Greek. Um, you know, we, we sometimes people think you know they might think that all pastors can read Greek. Sadly, that's not true. Actually, very few, very few can. Um, they may have to they may have had to take one semester, you know, or two semesters in in seminary. But uh, in truth, few can. But this is also trickling down into our into printed Bibles, modern printed Bibles. And I pointed out that the New Living Translation of 2015, uh, which is an evangelical translation, now includes uh, what is sometimes called the shorter ending of Mark inserted between verses eight and nine. The shorter ending of Mark is an odd, spurious, non-canonical um, verse that appears in a handful of late medieval manuscripts was never accepted as given any credence. Even Westcott and Hort gave it no credence yeah. as, as being in any way, shape, or form original to the text of, of the Gospel of Mark. And yet now, there it is, 2015. It's there Amazing. in the New Living Translation. It is. And then in the, in the notes, they have... Uh, Another spurious reading that appears in only one manuscript, Codex Washingtoniensis. It's called the Freer Logion. Um, and the idea is they put it in, in there and the reader, the English reader can look at this and say, well, you know, where does Mark end exactly? Does it end at verse 8, Mark 16, 8? Does it end with Mark 16, 8 plus the sh- so-called shorter ending? Does it, is it Mark 16, 8 plus the shorter ending plus the traditional ending? Mark 16, 9 through 20. And do we add also verse 14? And even the person who can't read Greek now, they can pick up that English Bible translation and they can see, oh, wow, there's a lot of fluidity here, a lot of diversity here. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, someone may, some actually people who have adopted this view, they see this as, this is wonderful. This is tremendous. This is, uh, this opens great horizons, you know, that you have the autonomy to create the Bible you think is right. Yeah. And I, I said in my message, I said, I don't see this as freedom. I see this as chaos. And, um, you know, I, I believe that there is a, a, an authoritative text of the Bible. And it includes Mark 16, uh, verses 9 through 20, the traditional ending as the authoritative canonical ending and the so-called shorter ending is non-canonical, spurious, and should not appear in our Bibles. It's never been accepted it's been, as, as um, part of the proper the text of Scripture proper. And whereas verses 9 through 20 has been 
accepted. That's the other extreme is we've got people even like John MacArthur who have re rejected the traditional ending of Mark. We have people now who are expositional preachers who preach expositional sermons and they, they through the gospel of Mark and they end at verse eight and they say, oh, this is the end. The women ran, ran out. They were frightened and they didn't tell anyone. And oh, that's that's a meaningful ending. That's a that shows us that shows us what we, where we are in the modern times. We're we're filled with doubt, but still we're supposed to believe and so forth. And they come up with fanciful explanations for why that's somehow meaningful. And um, I, I say, wait a second. Um, what about verses nine through twenty? Oh well, it's missing in some of the oldest manuscripts. Oh really? How many? Yeah. Two. Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. It's in every other one, over a thousand manuscripts. Um, well, you know, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, they're 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 our earliest manuscripts. Well, they're the earliest extant uncial manuscripts that we have. But if we were to go back and read uh, the Church Father Irenaeus of Lyon, who uh, uh, lived in the second century and wrote a work called um, Against heresies we'll find there that he quotes yep. the the beginning of the gospel of mark self-consciously he's talking about the gospel of mark he says it begins mark 1 1 the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god and it ends and he quotes verbatim from the so-called traditional ending of mark yep. it's, it's the earliest reference we have to the gospel of mark uh dating to about the year 150 and he, he accepted the traditional ending of Mark as the, the proper ending of canonical Mark. It's older than Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Yeah. I don't know why Sinaiticus and Vaticanus don't have the traditional ending. Yeah. But, I, but more importantly, I don't know why modern Christians ever thought it would be appropriate to abandon it based on two, two witnesses, um, two Greek witnesses. Sorry, that's a lot, brother. No, you know what? There's so much to address in there. I'll just give my one little, the one point that I would make on that. And, uh, you know, to me, um, the argument of having a gospel is is the full body of the gospel itself, which is um, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And and you hear so often for a, a proponent that would say that that Mark 16 ends in, in verse 8, that 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 you do have an account of the resurrection that that Jesus said that he would rise again um, and then you've got the angel that speaks to the women and says well he's not here you know but to me a, a more important theological representation of what what marks gospel to have a complete true gospel would be to have an actual appearance of the resurrected Christ and to me that's where that's where if you're even if you don't consider the external and the internal witnesses of Mark 16, the theological implication that you don't have an appearance of the resurrected Jesus, and yet you're calling it a gospel based off of a promise that he has risen without actually seeing him risen, that's problematic for me just in of itself in that one point. But um, I don't know if you had anything that you wanted to address on that point. Um, well, just along those lines, and I, I think I said this in lecture also, I can't keep repeating myself. It's kind of fresh on my mind because <laughs> I just, I just you know, did this teaching on Saturday. Um, but, you know, I, I drew attention. Actually, I think I, I, this actually wasn't part of my lecture notes, and I just did it uh, spontaneously because I've talked about this so many times. But, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul lays out the gospel that he had preached to the Corinthians. And uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And then he, he gives an outline of his teaching of the gospel to show, sort of giving his bona fides to the Corinthians, reminding them what is the gospel. And he says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. And he goes on and, and, and gives some other resurrection appearances, like the appearance to the five hundred, to James, to the apostles. And then last of all, Paul says he was he appeared to me as one born out of due time. So but if you think about um, I, I often when I'm teaching survey of the New Testament, I take my students and I have them read this passage. And I asked them, what are the key four events that Paul says are essential to the historical understanding of the Christian gospel? And the four things are the death of Christ, the burial of Christ. I mean, that's kind of peculiar because, you know, we don't think of the burial of Christ being essential to the gospel. But think about all the canonical gospel accounts. In every one of them, there's an account of Christ. Being buried by Joseph of Arimathea in John's gospel says Joseph and Nicodemus took care of that, right? But it's important because the burial um, Is a proof of the death of Christ that he actually died and then it goes on that he rose the resurrection But then the resurrection appearances and what are the resurrection appearances a proof of the resurrection appearances are the proof of the resurrection just as the burial was the proof of his crucifixion and death. And so Paul says those four points where if you want to preach the gospel, it's Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. So those who believe Mark 16 ends at verse 8 have a truncated gospel. They have a gospel without resurrection appearances. It doesn't fit with Matthew's gospel or Luke's or John's. Um, I would say it's essential to a gospel. Yeah. Now, it used to be in the days of Westcott and Hort, the, the typical idea was, well, there was an ending, but it was lost. That was one of the theories. It was lost. Or another one was that the author died before he completed. And someone else came along and composed verses 9 through 16, That uh, 9 through 20, rather. That used to be a very common sort of view. But it's only really it's only in the modern period. It's only in the last 50 years or so that we have people are making the argument that it ends at verse eight. And there are a lot of other reasons. We can talk about internal reasons for why that, you know, it would have it would be a gospel ending with the um, the cliffhanger positive conjunction gar that yeah. just doesn't happen. So there are a lot of there's a lot of reasons why. Mark would not end at verse eight, and there are a lot of reasons why. And I've written, you talk about things I've written. I, I do have an article that you can find at academia.edu, and the title of the article is um, The Ending of Mark as a Canonical Crisis. Yeah. And um, if someone's interested in arguments for the authenticity of the, um, of the traditional ending of Mark, they can see that article. There's also a really excellent book that's written by a British fellow named Nicholas Lunn, which is uh, uh, it was written just a few years ago, so it's contemporary. 
And I've also written a book review of that, of Lund's book, which is on my academia.edu page if you want to just dip in a little bit to know about some of the arguments that he makes in, in favor of the originality, authenticity of the traditional ending of Mark. So um, let's put this into kind of a practical application. I want to kind of engage with uh, what the implications of these these textual variants and, and, and the impact that they have on the text and the various different Bible versions and, and see how it actually... Um, how it how it relates in the real world. I, I, the example that I'm going to use is a YouTube video that you may have seen before. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is a debate between a re, very recent debate uh, between James White and um, Lee. Where's it? Where's what's his last name? Uh, where is it? Lee Baker. So in, in this debate, they. They're debating whether or not the New Testament we have contains the inspired word of God intended for his people. And Lee says that he recently gave 500 King James Bibles to people in Africa who read it by the candlelight, and they believe it to be the word of God. And, and James says this translation has variations within the text that are not in the inspired word. He says it contains additions to the text. So James goes on to say that we have uh, versions today that have the correct reading in them, specifically referring to the ending of Mark, the pericope adulteri, and the Johannine comma, um, that don't include passages like this. And he precludes that statement by holding up an NA28 and refers Lee to the ECM for him to study the matter out himself so that he is able to come to his own conclusions about what should be or shouldn't be in the text. So I'm going to play this video and uh, see if we can get kind of um, your take on that. Oh, I got to switch to the screen share here. Give me just a second. Of course it is, because there's also a medium ending and a sort of in-between ending. And you're okay with that? What do you mean okay with that? It's a historical reality. I, I thought it was the Word of God. Okay, so you are... So what you're saying to yes. us all right now right. is that you were not educated and trained in the history of the New Testament to know how it came to us. So you had a false idea yes. of yes. what the Word of God supposedly is. Absolutely. And now that you've encountered the truth about this, instead of just going, oh, many people before me have learned this, understood this, and still believe it's the Word of God, you've just thrown it out. No, I didn't throw it out, Dr. White. I was personally hurt and offended that I handed nearly 500 Bibles to Africans who I still support in a Christian church and tell them, and they read it by candlelight, believing that this is the Word of God. They what do translation not, was it? The King James. Okay. And you bought it because of why? Because of price. Because the, well, that, that's the point. That ends the debate. The fact that you do this because you don't have the money to know what's going on in the details. Money? No, sir. No, sir. Or the time or the energy. When was it translated? This is perfect. When was... Okay, let me get back to this other screen. If I don't get it back to the interview screen. Okay. So, Dr. Riddle, my question to you would be, when we're looking at a real-world application of, of, of the impact that um, some of the, the conversations that we're talking about in the modern critical text and what should and shouldn't be in the Bible, and uh, specifically with, with, with Lee, he converted from Mormonism to Christianity, and then he discovered 
um, the, the textual criticism arguments in, in which Bible is right. And he's going through these questions, and he, he, he says at the very beginning of the debate, like, we trust our scholars, we trust James White, we trust guys like you who know what should and shouldn't be in the Bible, and yet you choose to put it in there, and I go and give these Bibles to these people in Africa, and, and it's, not even, it, it's not even a canonical portion of what is in there. So it's problematic for him. And, and to him, he says, well, I can't trust Christianity. So my question to you would be, what is the actual implication, the actual impact that this uh, methodology has on a real world, uh, in a real world scenario? And what do we do about it? Well, I mean, I, the, I, I, I have not, I've heard about that dialogue that uh, Mr. White had with this fellow I never watched it, and uh, but you know, just listening to this clip, first of all, it sounds like a very confusing conversation. Um, so this fellow, this poor fellow, you know, was a Mormon, then supposedly was a Christian. We'd say he's a false professor, and now he's rejected that and he's something else. So this fellow is confused. Yeah. So I, I don't think this conversation would be. A hallmark of clarity or insight but you know it raises the issue of you know would this fellow um, you know would would it would have would there have been a, a better um, response or discipleship for this man or again he wasn't a Christian so I, we can't really talk about discipleship a better witness to him if you know there had been uh, a strong um, a strong uh, teaching about the, the preservation of scripture. Um, he, maybe the point he's making is to someone like uh, 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 someone like uh, Mr. White, who embraces the modern critical text. You know, if you really hold to the modern critical text, and if you really think that Mark sixteen nine through twenty is spurious, and if you really think. John 7:53 through 8:11 is spurious. Then why aren't you protesting Bibles that include those? The reason that there that that publishers don't print Bibles without Mark 16:9 through 20 is that no one would buy them. Uh, the reason they don't print Bibles without John 7:53 through 8:11 in them is that, is that no one would buy them. And I I think that's because the sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. And they accept uh, the traditional ending of Mark as scripture. They accept the pericope adulteri, the woman taken an adultery passage as scripture. And, um, and, and so they contend there's the tenacity of the, of the traditional text. Um, but James, James White says a lot of things that are very confusing. A lot of people follow him. A lot of people think that he's an expert in text criticism, that he's an expert in theology. And um, when it comes to things like text criticism, he says a lot of things that are inaccurate. He says a lot of things that, um, that people who know the field recognize are inaccurate or are overstatements or are exaggerations or, um, misrepresentations of the evidences and you know the little clip there which I hadn't previously heard when he talked about oh now we have the CBGM 
Now it's it's creating, you know, now it's it's creating for us the authoritative text. That's a that's a, a very misleading statement. And if you've listened to my lecture on the postmodern text and the CBGM, you'll understand why. Um, the, 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 the editors of the CBGM and those who, have, those who have studied the application of this method to the New Testament as it's been done so far, like Peter Gurry and Tommy Wasserman, have concluded exactly the opposite of what Mr. White just said, that actually the NA28 is a text that produces more uncertainty, not less. That's the, that's the conclusion of Gurry and Wasserman. And yet we have James White standing before this audience saying, now we have the CB Jim and it's, now it's giving us, this, it, it's giving us great certainty. It's, it's not true. It's inaccurate. Um, the modern critical text method will never produce a more accurate text. And, um, you know, I think those in this, this anecdotal story that's being told about giving Bibles out and people who are being given the King James Version. You know, I'm glad they were given that. <laughs> I'm glad they were given a traditional text of Scripture. And I, I'm, I, I'm glad they were given that text to read. And um, I don't know why that should be a problem uh, for someone who holds to Orthodox Christianity. Um, if Mr. Baker has come to a came to some point where he um, has rejected Christianity. He was probably never a believer to begin with. We don't, I'm, I'm reformed, so I believe in the perseverance of the saints, and we would count him as being someone who was a, a stony ground hearer and someone who wasn't really converted. So I'm really not taking his assessment on the nature, the value of Scripture seriously. He's not a believer. Um, so Anyways, uh, it, it, th that whole interaction you played um, was sounded very confused and confusing, and I hope my, my attempt to give some little ad hoc um, analysis of it doesn't add to the confusion of it, but yeah. that's yeah. my response. No, and I appreciate that. Um, obviously, you and I would have some differences when we talk about um, whether or not someone is saved um, if they, you know, we've got differences there because uh, whether or not you're a Calvinist or not, but in, 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 and that's a conversation to be had sometime, but I do think that, um, so, so just to be clear, Josh, then you don't hold to the perseverance of the saints. Well, I do hold to the perseverance of the saints, but I don't hold to the perseverance of the saints the same in the same way that Calvinism teaches perseverance. How, I mean, how, how many different ways are there to hold to it? Do you believe someone can be saved but lose their salvation? No, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I mean, and I wouldn't then, even uh, go, go to the conclusion that... See, I, I recently did a debate with a, a guy on whether or not you can lose your salvation or, or you can't lose your salvation. I, I've done another debate with a Calvinist on... Um, on uh, total depravity. We've, uh, we've done debates on free will. We've done debates on limited atonement um, in, in different different conversations like that. But no, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. But as far as my personal stance goes, um, I believe that even if you, once you're born again, you're a new creature in Christ. All things are new. All things are passed away. I, I, I believe that. I, I also believe that, that you can you can you can sin gravely, and I believe that we all do sin. We've still got an old nature, 
We've got a new nature. I believe that there's a, ba- a battle between the, the flesh and the spirit uh, in Romans 8. And I know that we've got different different variations on how we would look at Romans 8 through a Calvinist lens or through through my, through my a, a different lens that's not Calvinism, if you want to call it traditional or provisional. Um, and, and I think there's implications in that. But I also, I also believe that if we deny Christ, that he cannot deny himself. So... Um, it, just the theological implication that even if even if you do say well if you apostatize that means that you were never a Christian I I think that what do you do with Peter Peter denied Christ does that mean that that he was never saved I I think that we've just got some real practical problems with it when it comes to that that side of the conversation but um, of course we would say there's a there's a fundamental distinction made between the Christian, the authentic believer who backslides, we believe in backsliding. Yeah. That, 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 that a genuinely saved person because of remaining corruption will continue to sin and sometimes even sin grievously. But the difference would, the difference would be between Peter and Judas. Judas was a false professor, someone who was never really converted. And in the end, you know, was proven to be someone who was reprobate. And um, whereas Peter is, a, is the model for the Christian who denies Christ, but um, is not uh, uh, is not forsaken, but See, but who that's perseveres where, and is restored. Yeah. See, and that's kind of, that's where it gets problematic for me because um, I mean you're 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 looking at two different two completely different stories. One is Judas, where where we can draw the conclusion at the end of his life. And, and then we're looking at Peter, where it's not the end of his life, where he denies Christ. And but but you made the statement with Lee Baker. Well, we don't believe this guy is saved. He never was a true convert if he denies Christ. So to me, it just it's it's contradictory to say, well, Peter was never saved. Lee Baker was never saved, but Peter was saved, and they both denied Christ. So it just that's where it it kind of becomes a problem for me on on that particular. What do you think it meant when Christ said, he who endures to the end shall be saved? What do I think it means? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that it's your works. I, I don't believe that I, I, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of aspects when it comes to the endurance well, to the end. I didn't, I didn't say anything about works. I well, said he endures to the end. But what are we said. looking at? But what are we looking at when we're talking about enduring to the end? Are we looking at works or what, what exactly are you looking at? Remaining in a state of grace and and belief. Okay, well, I agree with that. So, I mean, we wouldn't have a difference there. So, but I, I think that you endures to the end will be saved. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, um, see, the the problem is when you get into that conversation that it's inevitable that it's going to be drawn into lordship salvation, and and I've I, lordship salvation gets dangerously close to work salvation if it's not. <laughs> I didn't say anything about works, but endurance in the faith, remaining in a state of grace. <laughs> and maybe you and I could talk about this sometime because even yeah, in the confession. Sorry. We're on tech. We're talking about text. We'll get back to <laughs> But yeah. oh, Go that's so good, man. Back, so, back to the plan. Okay. So I want to play one more clip. And uh, this is this, the same uh, debate, but it's at the end where we're drawing our conclusions. And I, I want to get the, the practical um, application, the impact of this view of the modern critical text advocate. Um, this on, is White Baker again. Stuff. Yes, it is. And then, and then if we have time, we're at, we're at an hour and 20 minutes. If, if, if we've got time for one more clip, we'll see how far we get, but um, we can yeah, wrap it up. For sure. me, so. 
Okay, so let me get there. I'm going to switch over to this screen. Should be pulled up for you. Okay. That you could fun. not respond no. to the refutation that you agreed with the process of adding 400 words to Section 24 I, to become Section right. 24 of the Doctrine and Covenants is not the same as the free transmission of the text of the New Testament over time. Why there not? Is a let me pause this here. I want to go back, give a little bit of a backdrop so I don't, it doesn't look like I'm just dropping in on the conversation and, and pulling a clip out that I want to. So James James gives the difference here between free transmission of the scriptures versus a controlled transmission. And he's using that to compare uh, the Mormon scriptures to Christian scriptures. And specifically, I've got to switch over here. It might be an echo for those of you guys who are listening. And specifically, he uses that even in arguments with Muslims and Mormons to show the difference between a free transmission and a controlled transmission. And uh, he says that we've got a good idea about what was in the originals by looking at the manuscript tradition, but we don't know for certain uh, that what we have now is exactly as it was in the originals. So um, I, I want to ask you uh, a question, but I want to play the rest of the clip for those of you viewing and uh, for you, Jeff, as well, since you have not seen this yet. So... We'll keep it going. Why not? Yes. Can you not see the difference between no. an organization that controls the text and therefore determines what's going to go out? So the word of God the is free, looser. The, the word of God is looser in the old in the New Testament because you say it happened slowly over a, a longer period of time, and we don't know the organization. But you're going to give them a pass for that? The <laughs> the free transmission of the text in the New Testament is how we can know that we still possess all the original readings. The early church was under persecution from the time right. of Nero right. to the peace of the church in AD 313. Right. Rome was destroying scriptures. But and you've because... admitted that you don't have the original. We've never claimed otherwise. And so you, you say that that is God breathed and you don't yes. know how it got there. I, I'm describing to you the process that it got there. God okay. preserved it through the manuscript tradition, which you reject as being a possible way of it coming to that us. That is absolutely true. There you go. All right, so there we get kind of a uh, what what Lee would say is the 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 logical conclusion for a modern critical text proponent when it comes to the transmission of scripture compared to the Mormon transmission of scripture, and uh, and just showing that it, it's it's a formulating um, process that we never can actually get back to the original, and uh, and Lee saying, well, that's that's the same thing as what the Mormon scripture is saying. But, but my question to you, Jeff, would be this. Is, is this still the conclusion that scholarship has come to, when, which we addressed it somewhat earlier, when they come up with the new editions of the Greek, Greek New Testament and transmit it into various translations? That is, are we trying to get back to the originals through textual criticism or someday hoping to find the originals? Or is there some uh, motivating factor that has changed in regard to the methodology? So we've, we've answered that, but how would you respond um, to Lee in this case when it comes to the transmission of the scriptures for the TR versus the modern critical text? If we could, if we could get um, your take on that. Yeah, it's another big topic, and I feel like I've maybe addressed it you know, a couple times, but particularly yeah. in the beginning when I when I drew the distinction between the reconstructionist model versus the preservationist model. And so what I would say to him or to anybody else is our task 
is not to attempt to reconstruct the text. Um, we can't do that. We don't have enough material. We don't have enough information. And uh, and 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 the 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 work of modern text criticism is a beautiful illustration of this. Um, we just were talking about CBGM with the diamonds. We we don't know what the the reading is. Here are four options. You choose one. Um, or the fact that uh, people use modern text criticism, the old style, when they when they were still attempting to think, when there were still people thinking that they could restore the original. And they would come up with different ideas about that. Um, you know, uh, James White, for example, has notoriously said that he doesn't believe Luke 23:34 is authentic when Christ prayed uh, on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says, that's not part of scripture. That's, that's spurious. Um, but, uh, and, and he's an advocate for, you know, modern criticism. But uh, the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, which came out in 2017, published by Crossway, uh, edited by Dirk Youngkin, who is also a reasoned eclectic uh, modern text critic, uh, they argue that uh, Luke 23:34 is authentic, and the, they say the reason it was omitted was that that was a scribal harmonization. They said that harmonizations can also uh, one of the things that can happen in harmonizations is the reduction or the omission of passages. So it was it was left out because it's not in the other gospels by by some scribes, and then that was caught up in in the truth. So so what my point is, if you use the um, the vaunted uh, modern historical critical method, you never arrive at a standard text. And so uh, the alternative to that is the is the received text, the confessional text, the text that was the same one that was uh, accepted by the Protestant Reformed and the Protestant Orthodox and became the basis for all the translations. So I would say to Mr. Baker, um, we have the text. Here it is. Uh, it, it's a received text. And we know what it is. This is this is what it is. This is the this is the text that has uh, been kept pure in all ages by the providence of God. And it is it is the it is the autographic text. We do not have the physical remains of the autographs. As John Owen said, uh, we don't have them because uh, we would do what Rome did. We, we would we would make relics of them and worship them. And so God in his wisdom um, did not allow the uh, the autographer, the autographs to remain in our day. They've been destroyed through persecution or through use. We don't have them. But what we have are, are fateful apographer copies. And um, uh, and now there is a what Richard Brash, uh, a British scholar who has written on this. This isn't necessarily his view, but he summarizes this as the view of the Protestant Reformed and the Protestant Orthodox, that there is basically a uh, practical univocivity between the autograph and the opograph, that when, what we have in the, in the received text is the autograph. And so we have the text. Yeah. We have the text. We're not looking for it. We have it. Yep, and I um, think that's... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. So that would be, that would be my response. And... You know, I, I think that uh, the whole 
modern critical text enterprise of someone like James White, it just leads to confusion. It undermines. It doesn't, it doesn't lead to people having confidence in the word of God. In the end, it, it leads to undermining uncertainty. Um, the, the point was made in the conference just completed that there's a reason why Muslims, for example, like to uh, take clips of James White's teaching and put them and post them themselves. As Robert Trulove said, they don't post Robert Trulove's material on the Internet. Um, because they don't like it. <laughs> now, I, I've got to stop you there. They love there. Bart Ehrman. They love James White. They do. It, it, com- it completely supports their view that the, that the New Testament is uh, has been poorly transmitted. And EC, even they don't even, they don't even know what their scriptures are. Yeah. Um, and so their viewpoint is horrible for Christian apologetics. It's sad. I, I want to, that's going to transition and piggyback right into that conversation, the way you just left off there. Uh, in this next clip, this will be the last video that I play. It's three minutes long, and then I want to talk about it for just a minute, and that's how we're going to end our show when it comes to the apologetic method of the, the TR view and position uh, versus the modern uh, critical text position, and get your take on that, Jeff, and then I want to end with one final question to you, and then we'll go, we'll, okay. we'll wrap it up. So, oh, I got to click my screen here so you guys who are viewing can see it as well. Forget to do that. We'll we'll go ahead and play it here. Which is cool to have. uh, Right around the same time, just a few days ago, an article appeared um, written uh, by uh, Taylor DeSoto out here in uh, Gilbert, Arizona. And uh, there's a little blog that's been put together here, The Young, Textless, and Reformed. Now, um, it is important for us to refute these errors. These errors are not held by many people. But I have said before, I'll repeat it again, if you're going to engage with the culture, if you're going to engage with meaningful and educated Muslims, atheists, agnostics, um, and others in our society, uh, you're going to need to understand why we can have confidence in the text of the New Testament. And I believe that retreating back to the initial stages of the creation of a collated text, that is, to the work of Erasmus, his five volumes, the works of Stephanus, he did a couple of different editions. When I say volumes, I mean editions, five editions. For Stephano, uh, uh, Erasmus, Stephanus' editions, and then the editions of Beza, going up to 1598. So the 16th century, long before the discovery of the papyri, long before the discovery of the Great Unseals. Vaticanus was known. Erasmus made reference to it. Um, If you're going to retreat back there, and it is a retreat, it's a retreat back to a time period before collations of manuscripts could be done, before there was any catalogs of manuscripts, where each editor, whether it was Erasmus or Beza or Stephanus, had to 
almost physically have access to the manuscripts, which none of us, I mean, actually, we can do it in a wonderful way today via high-quality digital images. Um, but there were mistakes made that I've pointed out. For example, Beza made some mistakes because he didn't realize that in Stephanus, in Stephanus, <laughs> go ahead and I, I just it's I just do this just because I know that the TR guy is like he shouldn't have that should not have that wonderfully brand new bound. It even says Stephanus right there. It says 1550 on the side. It's it's in such great shape and it's beautiful. He shouldn't have that because he's a mean man. Um, in Stephanus, here along the the sides, you have these these notes. Uh, both both sides, some are cross-references, and some are references to uh, other manuscripts. Um, what Beza did not know, I'm just saying this in passing, I've mentioned it to you before, what Beza did not know was that um, Stephanus had had access to Codex Beze Cantabrigensis, which would be, the, it, it's Codex D, it's that. Okay, so I went a little bit over there, but I... I I want to just turn this over to you. There's so many questions that I could ask you when it comes to a meaningful apologetic with Muslims and atheists. Uh, his response to Taylor DeSoto from, I believe it's the Agros Church. I could be wrong on that, but um, and then and then what your your final take would be on the TR and whether or not it is a settled text when it's something that he is claiming it's kind of just pulled out of, of thin air when it comes to um, the Reformation period. What, what would your response be to that clip? You might be on mute. Can you hear me? I can hear I you can now. Hear you. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Um, there are a lot of things to respond to in that. I mean, it's hard to know in some ways where to begin. But um, one thing I could just pick out of that is um, he, it's another place where, as I mentioned earlier, that those who know the field and understand it um, see that James White often misrepresents the, the facts, the details. Um, he's a popularizer. He's not a, he's not really a scholar in the field of text criticism. He's never written any scholarly works as far as I know in the field of text criticism. He's a popularizer, you know, which is fine. I mean, ministers are popularizers and journalists, but you know, one of the things he said was essentially that Erasmus and, um, and Beza and others were ignorant of uh, textual variants and differences. And this is a point I've made multiple times, and I made it in the conference this past weekend. Um, Erasmus was very much aware of the major textual issues in the New Testament, the same ones that are being talked about today. He knew about the traditional ending of Mark. He knew about the Pericope Adulteri. In fact, Peter J. Williams, uh, who's the principal of the Tyndale House, has recently published a book in 2018 
defending the historicity of the Gospels. And he has a little section on Erasmus in which he calls Erasmus uh, the cleverest man uh, in the world of his times. And um, at several points in his discussion, he says, essentially, you know, Erasmus knew about just about every textual issue that we know about today. He says, you know, we've, we've discovered more manuscripts, we've discovered the unsealed, but it really hasn't changed significantly the same material that Erasmus had. And he makes the point that Erasmus um, in his Greek New Testament um, in many places gives us the same exact text that is in the modern critical text today. Uh, he talks about John 1, 1 through 14 in Erasmus's 15, 16 edition is exactly the same as in a, in a 28. And so his point is Erasmus knew about many of these textual variations. Um, I said in the conference, uh, it's another misrepresentation that James White has made in the past. He makes in his King James only controversy book where he says that John Calvin was ignorant of the major issues, major variants in the New Testament, and he only he only accepted the Textus Receptus um, out of necessity and out of naivete, and it wasn't a measured uh, decision. And uh, I made the point, have made the point, um, and I did it in a scholarly article called John Calvin and Text Criticism, which can be found at myacademia.edu page, that Calvin was very aware of the major textual variants that we deal with today. All you have to do is read his commentaries, read what he said about the doxology of the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew 6, 13b, read what he said about the pericope adulteri, read what he said about um, 1 Timothy 3, 16, God was manifest in the flesh, read his commentary on 1 John 5, 7 and 8. He knew about controversy about the coma ioanneum, um, and yet, he chose to affirm the Texas Receptus. In fact, he even knew uh, there was available to Calvin um, a, a Greek text that's known as the Decolonaeus, Greek New Testament that was done in 1534. But he intentionally set that aside and embraced the Texas Receptus. So, again, one of the misrepresentations that White put forward was that Erasmus and Beza and these other men of the Reformation era, he didn't directly in this talk mention Calvin, but he has in others, that they, they simply were, they didn't have the wealth of information we have, and therefore the TR, the, 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 the New Testament is a defective text because we have all this wealth of information now. We have, we know so much more now. Um, but, uh, that is not exactly true. And as I think Robert Trulove made the point in our conference, um, it's also possible that those men of that era had access to, um, more information than we have now. Um, think about all the things that have transpired since the 16th century, including two world wars in Europe. Um, think about how many things were destroyed. We probably, we, 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 there's a good chance we don't have access to some of the things they did have access to. And in many cases, we don't know everything that they had access to, like the King James Version translators or Erasmus. 
Um, and so we can't necessarily assume that they did not. Um, it, it would be it would be modern hubris to assume that we necessarily have more information than they did. And so um, uh, uh, that would be one place where I would say that his attack on the traditional text is uh, unfounded. And then with regard to apologetics, I've already said this, I don't want to just repeat myself, but I I don't see how it is somehow um, obvious as he apparently thinks or, or evident that some, for some reason, the modern critical text is, is a superior apologetic approach. As I've already pointed out, there are lots of problems with, uh, for apologetics with embracing the modern critical text. And, you know, perhaps chief among those is it gives you a text that is uncertain, that's disputed, um, that's ever-changing, and um, and I think that that this makes the traditional text much more winsome, much more appealing. Um, let's say in in discussion with Muslims, they come from a tradition where they're told that the Quran has been faithfully preserved. They understand the idea of providential preservation of a sacred text. That's what they believe about the Quran, and. Uh, of course, we believe that their their view on that with regard to the Quran is misplaced, but the Bible isn't the Quran. The Bible is the the Word of God, and we believe it has been providentially preserved by God. And um, so, I think the way to address a Muslim, whether it's an an uneducated nominal Muslim, or whether it is an educated intelligent Muslim is not to attempt to do text criticism apologetics with them, whether one is a modern critical text advocate or a traditional text advocate. The proper way to do apologetics with such a person is to simply to talk about Christ and to talk about the gospel with them. Uh, I've, as a pastor, I have been blessed to have two experiences uh, in my ministry, where I've seen people who were Muslims come to faith in Christ. Um, I baptized a man who was an Iranian who came to faith in Christ. And I saw a, a man from Turkey come to Christ uh, as part of my church's ministry. He ended up being baptized in England when he returned to England. So I, I've, and, I, and, and I'm a traditional text advocate. Somehow, I didn't talk to those men about text criticism. I talked to them about Christ. I preached the gospel. Um, and I think that's what we need to focus focus on. Um, we're not called to go out and try to do comparative religion with people from other faiths. We're, we're, taught, we're called to speak to them like we do any other sinner, like someone raised a nominal Christian in America. We're called to go speak of Christ and him crucified and gloriously raised and those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ um, can walk in newness of life and experience resurrection power. And so um, I, 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 I don't think that it's legitimate at all to say that one must hold to 
modern text criticism to uh, in order to be able to put forward an effective and winsome apologetic. You know, I, I think about uh, a friend of mine who is a pastor in Malaysia who uh, holds to the traditional text and who every week is out preaching to um, migrant workers from Indonesia who are Muslims. And, or I think about my friend uh, Puyan, uh, who I mentioned earlier, who holds the confessional text and is involved with uh, a ministry to Farsi-speaking people and does internet broadcasts and radio broadcasts and face-to-face -face preaching. The fact that he holds to the traditional text in no way has been a barrier or boundary to his ability to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I think he would tell you it's been an asset because it's allowed him to speak with confidence about the word of God. Your, 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 your dear child is okay, man. <laughs> Say, dad's been, on, dad's been on this podcast too long. I've got my daughter. So for those of you, I had my mic muted for those of you who are viewing, but you can hear it. I want to tell you, I'm going to end with this question, then I'm going to mute it. Sis, I'll be with you in just a second. Are we, uh, are we going to see a debate between you and James White if it's able to be worked out to make it happen? I'll end with that, and then I got to go. Hey. Don't worry about your child there, brother. Hey, I, I've been there. I've got five. And, uh, you know, so my youngest of those five is now 13, so he doesn't do that. But I remember those days. And um, everybody who's an older father like me will tell you that there'll come a time when you, you'll, you'll really wish you had those days back again. So it's okay. Um, yeah. Will there be a debate with James White? I mean, we went through this whole rigmarole when we did the Texan Canon Conference. I guess that's what you're referring to when he went out publicly and challenged us to a debate. And, um, you know, we, we declined his offer, if we want to call it that. Um, he didn't approach that in an upright manner. He didn't, he didn't come to us and that um he just publicly announced this you know so it wasn't a it wasn't a good faith effort uh it wasn't an expression of goodwill it wasn't charitably done and uh and and you know we we did very quickly determined nope that's not what we want to do this conference was not about james white if we had had an event with him that would have been the center of things and actually Looking back on it in hindsight, we had a very successful conference. It was a very positive conference. It, it was a very effective conference, I think. And I think the Lord will use the networking and the information shared. So my goal is not to have a debate with James White. You know, there are a lot of people who chase him around who want to have debates with him because they want to, you know, in some cases, promote their ideas or, or increase their profile. We have no desire to do that. Um, we offered to do a written exchange with him. And you may know from the, the, the 
that one of the ironies of all of this, oddities of it, was that there's a church in Roanoke, Virginia, that around that same time, like a month or two before all of that, they had approached me and they were having a conference in their church and uh, they wanted to have um, they wanted to have me do a, a dialogue with him on this very issue. And they, they approached me and I said, yeah, if you can work it out, I'm willing to do it. And um, and he knew that the whole time he threw down that that challenge. He knew about the conversation that had already been had. And um, then um, he withdrew from that. Uh, he gave ostensibly as his reason that the venue was too small because the church was a, a confessional church that isn't a smaller community, but it's like a suburb of Roanoke, Virginia, which is a major metropolitan area, which has a major airport. And uh, he said that he would he couldn't come because he couldn't fly on a, a puddle jumper to a small area. You know, one of the ironies is his fellow elder at Apologia Church, uh, I think a month or two after that, came to a conference uh, in the same area in Christiansburg yeah. and flew into Ro the Roanoke Airport. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm not going to begin to try to figure out why he didn't want to do that dialogue with me um, and instead wanted to try to cha challenge for something to be done in our Texan Canon conference. I'm not going to begin to try to figure that out. Um, but at this point, um, he declined that offer. There hasn't, there haven't been any other offers that have been made. And um, if one, if I'm approached by a church or ministry that wants to do something, I would have to evaluate it at the time right now. I would probably be reluctant to do anything with him just because of um, just because of previous bad experience. But uh, I won't completely close the door, and uh, I'll be open. But again, I, the more I've thought about it, the more I've questioned what is the value of the of debating what's where is the biblical justification yeah. for for debating and um uh yeah i don't know that i necessarily see biblical justification for that as a as a proper form of ministry um you know i i think the the biblical ministry is involves preaching and teaching and um and i'm I'm a pastor. Um, that's my primary calling is to preach the gospel and to teach and to disciple. Um, so anyways, that's a long answer. I don't know if that does that answer your question? No, you know what I had more written out that kind of was a prelude to everything that you led up to um, what the ending of, of whether or not you would do it or not uh, based on some of the previous conversations that you, you two had had on whether or not the debate would happen, how it would happen, and and all of that. But I'll just, it, if I can put my input, here's what I want to see. I want to see you guys just dialogue, like just sit down, don't have a debate, like 
you know, nobody wants to watch the introductions and, and, and all of that anyway. Just have a dialogue. We don't want to see a fight. We just want to see you guys talk about the two differences, the impact, all, the implications, the methodologies. Like, go in through that and have the conversations that everybody wants to hear. And, and if you need a time to do an introduction, do 15-minute introductions, have a dialogue for an hour and a half, and then give closing con- uh, statements. I would love to see that if you guys could make that happen. But... Anyways, that's my tip for what it's worth. So, yeah, well, I, I've said before, you know, I think maybe something like that that's more likely to happen would be maybe a discussion with somebody like Mark Ward. You know, Mark, um, who has also given a, one of the few public uh, critiques of con- what he called confessional bibliology. He did a lecture uh, from uh, that was done for Reformed Baptist Seminary, um, and Mark has a much more ironic and charitable spirit. You know, disagrees just as strongly with the position, but does so with a lot more charity. And um, so maybe sometime, uh, you know, I'm, I've mentioned before, maybe he would be a good dialogue partner. Um, to discuss these types of things, but um, I hear you and, and I appreciate the the interest uh, that you have in it, and um, and I think others, you know, uh, you know, have a similar interest, and you know, we'll see what the Lord does. We'll see what what happens. Awesome. Well, Dr. Riddle, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. We've we've covered a lot of ground. And even with the tech issues and, and just going off of the sound, man, it's uh, it's been good. I really appreciate you doing I that. I hope it's been boring for people who have been watching just the blank. <laughs> they, they're seeing you, right? Yeah, the that's the worst part about it is they've got to sit there and look at me the whole time. Uh, yeah, that's okay. But, well, anyway. I, I appreciate you coming on. I, li- I look forward to finishing uh, the audio of the of the conference. It's been really profitable for me so far. So, And I, and I know that uh, God's using it, so... Uh, that's good enough for me, and uh, just please stick with it and keep keep up the good work, man. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you for the invitation, and I, and I wish you uh, God's richest blessing on your life and ministry. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll talk soon. So okay. I'm going to cut to my closing scene here, give you guys the announcements of upcoming episodes, and then we'll shut her down. So. Okay, um, what is it? Uh, November 6th, we're going to be talking with Jonathan Williams about hyperdispensationalism. He has a podcast. He's got a ministry. He was a pastor. He is uh, very involved. I think you guys will be uh, very interested in that conversation. But following up with that, on November 17th, we're going to be talking with James Snap Jr. He holds to the equitable eclecticism uh, position of the text, which if I could summarize these, uh, the position of the text, I would put it up into uh, three different major uh, views, one being the modern critical text, uh, two being the, the textist receptist, and then three uh, being equitable eclecticism. So um, anyways, that should be a good conversation as well. We're going to engage with uh, some of the articles that he has written, and we're going to get into some actual um, uh, textual variants and have a conversation about that, such as uh, the Pericope Adulteri. He's, he's written a book on that. And I believe, actually, I believe Jeff Riddle has had a Word magazine with, with James Snap on that particular variant. But anyways, guys, that's all I've got. God bless. I hope you have a good evening. Talk to you soon. <laughs>